Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're going to crush crooked Joe Biden, and he is crooked, most crooked, most corrupt president in history. We want our country to be run by people with intelligence, with common sense, with smartness, with, with love for our country, not love for other people in other countries. That was, you know who, Donald Trump. The former US president was in Iowa just a few days ago, campaigning in front of an adoring crowd. The US presidential election may be more than a year away, but already Europe is beginning to consider what Trump 2.0 might look like. I'm Suzanne Lynch, and in this episode of EU Confidential, we discuss the possible consequences of another term for Donald Trump in the White House. Is Europe ready? What would it mean for the war in Ukraine and for the transatlantic relationship? Later, I'll be speaking to Matty Masakus, who until recently was the EU's ambassador to Ukraine. With my background, I know the importance of Ukraine to the Russian imperial thinking. Since early November 2021, it was clear for me that, that it, it will happen. But first, let's begin with Donald Trump. He's not the only candidate in the running for the Republican nomination for president, but he is the frontrunner. According to the latest Morning Consult poll, 63% of potential Republican primary voters support Donald Trump for the nomination in 2024. That's putting him well ahead of other contenders like Nikki Haley, the former US ambassador to the UN, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And that's despite Trump being charged in four criminal indictments. Now, to discuss how Europe is preparing for a possible Trump return, I'm joined by Nick Vinokur, Politico's editor-at-large here in Brussels. Hi there, Nick. Hello. And Maida Ruga from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Hi, Suzanne. Good to have you with us. So, Nick, we'll start with you. You've been writing about this topic over the last week or so, how Europe is prepared or not prepared for a possible return of Trump. What are you hearing from who you've been speaking to? I think what I heard was a sense of alarm, of growing anxiety, of dread, of a sense that this is really happening. And that was the big, big contrast for me. I had done a similar exercise in the months leading up to the 2016 presidential election. And at that point, everybody or most people I spoke to were in denial. And a lot of people said, it just can't happen. This person, this uh, reality TV person is never going to be in the White House. 
now it's a very different tone. People are watching the polls very closely and see that he can come back. We've had him before, and they say we need to prepare. And that was from Francois Hollande, the former French president, to many diplomats and analysts that we spoke to. But that is a sort of where the conversation tends to end with the uh, sitting officials. We need to prepare. How exactly? Well, we're doing certain things already. But uh, when you ask the really big questions, how are we going to be independent from the U.S.? It's just a bridge too far. Mm. Magda, what do you feel about this topic? I mean, is Europe prepared? What does it mean, the possible Trump return to the White House? You know, when we think of Trump second term, we immediately think, is he going to leave NATO? Will he cut the USAID to Ukraine? Uh, will he force Ukraine to abandon parts of his territory? And will he pull out the US troops from Europe? These are kind of the alarming questions that come to our mind first. And I think on all of these issues, it's important, first of all, to note that Trump is not an outlier in the party. He's not a lonely figure here. There's a vibrant debate, both in the political landscape of the Republican primaries, as well as the institutions institutional landscape of kind of new right organizations and think tanks in D.C., my colleagues at ECFR and I have looked at the debates within the Republican Party on foreign policy, and we've identified three foreign policy tribes that hold different positions on U.S. global role, U.S. leadership, and its role in security in Europe. And so you have three tribes, basically the restrainers who want the U.S. foreign policy focused fully on America. You can put Trump there. You can put Vivek Ramaswamy there. And you can put all of the orbit of Trump advisors and associates like Tucker Carlson, like Steve Bannon, like Rick Grinnell, the former ambassador to Germany. Then you have China prioritizers who want to you know, U.S. foreign policy focused on Asia and deterring Chinese aggression of Taiwan. You know, there are several senators, but among the Republican primary candidates is most notably Ron DeSantis. And then you still have primacists. These are kind of the old Republican elite that are more internationalist leaning. And they think that the U.S. has to maintain global primacy and can do everything at the same time. And here you could kind of assign Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, as well as Chris Christie uh, and possibly Tim Scott out of the Republican primary contenders. And obviously, you know, from our point of view, from European point of view, the most pressing issue is the America's role in Ukraine and European security. And the matter of fact is that 75 percent of kind of the Republican vote goes to the three frontrunners in the primaries who are either restrainers or China prioritizers and who see an imperative of kind of redirecting resources from Ukraine either to the southern border and America or to China and Taiwan. And I think the kind of pressing question, you can you know go to five other issues animating the European-American relationship, energy, climate, trade, Middle East, etc., and you know think how are we going to prepare. But I think from our point of view, given the war on the continent, the most pressing question is how do we prepare for potential withdrawal of USAID to Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here about the whole political climate in America. I report there myself during the Trump years for, for four and a half years. One is the changing nature of the Republican Party. 
I mean, it seems to be a long time ago where you had this kind of John McCain style figure who we associate with the Munich Security Conference, who was a passionate believer in the role of America abroad and in the transatlantic relationship. The Republican Party has changed, but you also have a big sector of the American population who have got tired with the whole idea of American interventionism. Mm -hmm. And should America be the world's policeman, etc., that there isn't that same appetite. I mean, Nick, do you feel that people are worried more generally about uh, America, about the Republican Party's commitment to Europe, commitment to the trans? Atlantic relationship or do they feel here that at least with the war in Ukraine not to say there's a silver lining but it, what it has done at least has been to reinvigorate in a sense the transatlantic relationship and give more of a meaning to NATO etc. Well I think the war in Ukraine has rekindled the transatlantic relationship to something it hadn't been since probably before Obama was in office. Um, you mentioned John McCain as a great transatlanticist. I would put Joe Biden in the same camp. He's part of that sort of legacy of U.S. involvement in Europe. He's squarely in the premises camp, and he's sort of the the greatest dream Europe could have. I said, you know, in the piece he's described as the most Europe-friendly president in living memory. So in a way, it's been a great comfort zone to have Joe Biden in office. And I think the Europeans are looking at what's going on in the Republican Party with the same mix of sort of dread and denialism in a way. And I think it's exactly right to say that view is now becoming uh, a minority, the sort of primacy view. Even if you have Lindsey Graham, you have people who are defending the or making the link between Ukraine and China. It is kind of uh, sinking into uh, the minority for, for the Republicans. And I think the Europeans see that. They see that it's not just a Trump problem. In fact, it's a U.S. right problem. And it's going to be an issue for us. And there are there are preparations. There are things that have changed. European aid to Ukraine is now bigger than U.S. aid to Ukraine. However, I think the point I was trying to make in the piece is that we haven't yet joined up that discussion. What more is it going to take? It's going to take a whole lot more to deal with that kind of Republican uh, reality if they come back into power. Also, just to add, Trump is, you know, the polls are quite steady and clear Mm. um, in Trump's favor. And, you know, unless something remarkable happens, he is probably going to get the Republican nomination. And I think the question we then have to think about, I mean, there's still a lot of uncertainty with, you know, his legal cases, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to think about kind of the two elements. You know, what are the elements of continuity where we are likely to see the repeat of Trump one? And where will we see change? And I think on continuity, it's basically looking at his policies, which haven't changed. He still kind of holds this view of international relations or relationship between nations as, you know, predator and prey. He ha- he holds disdain for European Union, for free-riding allies. Uh, he is obsessed. He continues to be obsessed with America's trade deficit, both globally and with the European Union. And, you know, the, the kind of sympathies and inclination towards conservative strongmen like Viktor Orban, like Mohammed bin Salman, or, you know, Sisi in Egypt. All of that is still there. What will be different this time mm-hmm. is really the question of staffing. What we will not have in the second term term is these, you know, the moderating elements, the so-called adults in the room who have restrained him in the foreign policy on his worst impulses. Mm-hmm. 
And there you basically already have coalitions of new right think tanks and institutions who are preparing staffing plans and policy documents for second Trump term, most notably Heritage 2025 project. And we've already seen in the last week, for example, the entrance of this kind of Trump wing in the US Congress with uh, that stopgap funding bill getting through to avert a government shutdown, but without uh, extra additional aid for Ukraine. So we can see that influence on Trumpism growing. I mean, Magda mentioned there, Nick, about Orban. One of the things reading your piece there, yes, generally in Europe, there's a sense that, you know, Biden was good for transatlanticism. Although we do have to say, I mean, he did continue some of Trump's policies, for example, on China and the introduction of the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA that Europe was, you know, furious about because it, it, it impacted some European industries. But generally, look, there is a sense that Biden has revived the transatlantic relationship, but not everyone feels that. I mean, we've got Orban, we've got God knows what's going to happen in Poland in a few weeks, the election. So Orban is the only one who comes out and said, we would welcome, Trump would save the West. I'm not sure what the exact phrase is, but it's something like that. We've just had the Slovak election with a pro-Russia prime minister, Robert Fico, uh, coming into power. So that's going to be a buddy for Orban. And these people will obviously look to, to Trump to support them. But Poland is an interesting case because there you have a sort of pro-Trump government, but that was also very strongly pro-Ukraine. And I think one of the most kind of revealing sort of say the quiet part out loud quotes in the piece is from this lawmaker who says, well, we depend on the deep state essentially keeping foreign policy steady and continuing aid for Ukraine. So that was quite revealing about the bind that a Trump election would put Poland and the leadership, assuming you know law and justice, or even if it's if if there's a change in power, and he starts to radically change the direction of Ukraine policy. What happens? What does? How does Polish leadership react? They're you know jockeying for a sort of military strategic leadership position in Europe. Where do they go after that? Um, do they simply fall into line behind the U.S. Most likely, but it's not the end of the story. It is. Very kind of complicated in, in that respect. Just a, a comment that is a very good point you raised on we rely on the deep state to continue, you know, despite the impulses, despite the dis- restrainer impulses to kind of continue uh, providing aid. That's exactly, exactly the target of attack of all of the three Republican frontrunners. If you look at their language, whether it's Trump, whether it's Ron DeSantis or Vivek, they're all kind of focused on this idea that we need to do a huge overhaul of bureaucracy, demolish the deep state. In Trump's language, he talks about expel the globalist warmongers, drive out the globalists, cast out the communists. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and we will throw off the very sick political class that hates our country. It's basically all about throwing off the political class that represents kind of the internationalist liberal America and the Heritage 2025 project and this mandate for leadership. If you read it in detail, it's exactly about that. It's about deconstructing the administrative state in order to finally implement the kind of, if you want, on one hand, conservative cultural agenda at home, but then a more restrained agenda abroad. And I think that this is exactly one aspect of the second Trump term that is going to be 
chillingly more relevant for Europe and international affairs than during this first term. And that's the, the Heritage Foundation you're referring to again. Um, that's that conservative think tank in DC, which had a lot of influence in his first term. I remember about like the appointments of Supreme Court justices, abortion, those kind of issues. But as you're, as you're depicting there, I mean, the, the influence of these forces that we don't see here in Brussels, but really do affect policymaking in the Beltway, in DC, could be something to watch in a second Trump term. Thanks, Nick and Maida, for that. And we will have links to both their recent articles on this issue in our show notes. Still to come is our interview with Matty Matikas, the former EU ambassador to Kiev. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm joined now in studio by Matty Masikas, who served as the EU's ambassador to Ukraine from 2019 to just this summer. He was in the eye of the storm as a Russian full-scale invasion took place. Ambassador, maybe we'll start with the date that's in everyone's mind that we all remember, February 24th, 2022. You were in Kiev? I was. Tell us what happened. How did you first hear of this invasion that had started? I woke up to explosions around 5 a.m. I uh, then looked at my phone and I saw I had a missed call from Brussels from somebody who is dealing with aviation because the Russians had given earlier that night, the Russians had given a no-fly notification for Ukraine. It was very special of course, normally you, you do that for your own country. The Russians did that for Ukraine, and as a reason for, for that, they gave military activity. So you were in your, presumably, your residence, EU, the embassy, the representation in Ukraine, and you were there at home w- waking up to this? I was at my residence, yes. Yeah. I mean, what was your feeling? What was your first thing you did then after that? Called my head of security, of course and initiated the uh, procedure, according to which we were to gather at my residence. Because reminding people here, that invasion, that full-scale invasion started that morning, as you're dramatically describing there. But in fact, the EU had begun moving out staff before that. There was that build-up in the weeks beforehand. True. The uh, precautionary measures were taken in various embassies for various governments 
They were made pretty much according to whether one believed or not the U.S. and British intelligence that was then uh, constantly uh, publicized. We were ready. We had only a small number of essential staff in Kiev. Because looking back at that time, there were the warnings, that you said, coming from the US very publicly. And, you know, the Europeans at the time, I'm thinking Brussels, but also a lot of the bigger countries, France and Germany, the, the message that was coming, you know, it wasn't right to panic just yet. They were kind of, the message from Brussels was, well, there may not be an invasion. Do you think that's a fair characterization? There were several different uh, thoughts and several different calculations uh, in play. When some countries started first uh, to move their embassies uh, first out of Kiev, uh, mostly to Lviv, but then also to Poland, the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian authorities and the Ukrainian public perceived that in quite an emotional way, obviously. Uh, But we were ready. We had sent the family members and the non-essential expat staff away two weeks before the full-scale invasion actually started. What were those following days, like those two or three days in the aftermath of of this invasion? It was then a full realization. You may recall that the same evening, 24th of February, an extraordinary European Council meeting took place. Another round of sanctions was, uh, was introduced. It was a quick, full realization. And then by the night of the 25th, the EU remaining staff in Kiev was also ready to, for evacuation. Including yourself? Yes, we left for Moldova uh, in the early hours of 25th of February. And was that a very treacherous departure? I mean, awful lot of traffic. It went very slowly, but there was no panic. It went in full order. Just all the roads were clogged. The first 90 kilometers took us uh, eight hours. You arrived then in Moldova, and how long was it before you went back to Kiev, and, and what did you find when you got back there? In Chisinau, we took a night's sleep, as much as that was possible, and uh, then the essential staff of the EU delegation in Ukraine took up residence in Zeshov in southeast Poland, together with several other embassies from Kiev. We set up our operations there, coordinating uh, assistance, coordinating member states, also taking trips to Ukraine across the border. And at the first chance, and I'm I'm very proud of that, as the first EU ambassador, I then um, returned to Kiev 8th of April meaning uh, after six weeks. It has to be said that the Polish ambassador never left uh, Kiev. I was the first one to go back. It was a different city, of course. From the uh, three and a half million inhabitants, there were less than a million uh, remaining. Of course, they came back pretty quickly because that's where home is, that's where jobs are. Checkpoints everywhere, roadblocks everywhere, a few people on the streets mostly men, often armed. The government buildings were and are still fortified with sandbags and uh, quite uh, quite sophisticated roadblocks uh, system to get there. But everybody was so determined to fight and to win this war. And of course, the Russian invasion of Kiev 
didn't happen. People thought that was going to be the next step, but it didn't happen. They failed. They failed there as well. You had been ambassador of the EU since 2019. Did you really feel that this was going to happen? I mean, you know, did you... You're nodding here to me. Yes. Yes. First of all, as I said, it boiled very much down to whether one believes uh, the um, publicized intelligence information. And then, of course, with my background, I know the importance of Ukraine to the Russian imperial thinking. Uh, since early November 2021, it was clear for me that, that it, it will happen. You're obviously an Estonian diplomat. You were working in the Estonian foreign ministry for so long. I mean, you yourself must have growing up. I don't want to age you too much, but had that experience of, of Russian presence. Exactly the age uh, of still having served as a conscript in the Red Army in 1980s. So you did serve for the Red Army? Yes, Where? I was conscripted against the international law, by the way, uh, according to which citizens of occupied uh, states cannot be conscripted. But of course, the Soviet authorities uh, did not consider the Baltic states as occupied territories. Where did you serve? In Severomorsk, near to Murmansk, in, in the high north. Wow, fascinating. I mean, you, I suppose, encapsulate through one individual the broader conversation that was happening and continued to happen here, which was a lot of the Baltic states and countries of Central and East Europe who had had experience of Russian rule had been warning, had been sounding the alarm bell, and we had some other voices who either didn't want to know or didn't believe it was going to happen. But as you explained there, you, you thought it would. The unhappiest moment of having been right, yes. Yeah. How engaged were you in Ukraine with, you know, the Ukrainian government? I'm talking about, you know, in the year or two before the, the full-scale invasion by Russia. Is the ambassador privy to a lot of information? Were you meeting with the Zelensky government a lot, for example? Maybe give us a flavour of how it works being an ambassador to Ukraine, even before the war. Representing the biggest international donor and representing uh, the organisation that has, with the association agreement, actually provided Ukraine with a blueprint for reforms. I, of course, was in constant contact with the Ukrainian authorities, uh, government members, all the different strands of reforms, all the different strands of our financial assistance that amounted in the period from 2014 to the start of the full-scale invasion amounted to 16 billion euro. We're, of course, in constant cooperation with the authorities. Again, we tend to forget that this invasion in many ways began in 2014 and that dialogue between Brussels and Kiev really stepped up from that point. Um, these conversations about reform. How did you, or how do you characterise now, I suppose, those reform efforts? I mean, we were seeing a lot of media articles, speculation about issues of corruption in Ukraine. Now, I know we're in a very different place. We, we've got a country at war at the moment. But generally, I mean, do you think that Ukraine was making improvements in those fields before February 2022? Indeed, indeed. The reform strive that had started after the revolution of dignity in 2014 was uh, gaining pace. The um, anti-corruption institutional infrastructure was set up 
under Petro Poroshenko, uh, Zelensky's uh, predecessor. These institutions started to work. If we are talking about uh, corruption, the public intolerance towards corruption grew constantly. And is growing and is growing now. And Zelensky made sure to continue these efforts, and also he made sure and he makes sure to respond to the public opinion. Mm. I mean, where do you think things stand now? It's much more complex to think about a country joining the EU when it's at war. Surely, the accession path, in fact, started on the fifth day of the war, the twenty-eighth of uh, February, when President Zelensky, in very dramatic circumstances uh, signed the application to join the European Union. Before that, it was the association agreement, together with the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, that was the basis of our relationship. And what we did was to fully implement that. But then, since the last day of February, the accession avenue opened to my huge pleasure and satisfaction, the EU rose to the occasion. The EU responded to that, granting then finally in June last year the uh, membership perspective and the candidate status. The Ukrainian democracy has continued to work even uh, during the full-scale invasion. Ukrainian administration works, the parliament meets, adopts laws, and those laws are being implemented. In this respect, on the accession path, the seven recommendations that accompanied the decision to grant the candidate status are very close to be fully implemented by the Ukrainians, and then next steps may follow. This week, we've got the EU leaders meeting for the European Political Community Summit in Grenada. Enlargement has become the topic on everyone's lips here in Brussels. And we're going to have that uh, summit at the end of the year in December when EU leaders will consider the next steps. I mean, do you think Ukraine is ready? Do you think that the green light should be given to the next stage? It's first for the European Commission to assess the uh, implementation of the seven steps and then to make the recommendation. And then, as you very well know, all enlargement-related decisions have to be taken by the member states unanimously. But I think it's fair to say that for the first time since uh, 1990s and and the first years of, of this century, enlargement has again the winds of history in its sails. And that gives me confidence also on the next steps with Ukraine and with other countries. We feel like we are at this kind of bigger historical moment when it comes to the future of the EU. But one of the sub-themes, if you like, over the last few months I've picked up from talking to people is that is the EU's enlargement process too cumbersome? Does that need to be looked at? I mean, you've got these countries, and not just Ukraine, other countries in the Western Balkans, who are meeting these very strict criteria. You've got these negotiating chapters that are opened up, and this can sometimes take years. Do you think it's time for a rethink on that, or do you think the system works, or, or what's your feeling on that? Indeed, one of the discussions that is ongoing is also of the enlargement policy since the since the completion of the fifth enlargement, mm. 2004 and 2007. Mm. It would be very un-EU not to involve the uh, enlargement countries that have been there since 20 years with the membership perspective to leave them sort of aside of this new push. I don't think this, gonna, this is going to happen. 
And one part of this discussion indeed is, is the motivation enough? I remember as a young Estonian civil servant how tangible, how concrete was the membership perspective in 1990s for us that provided for all the motivation, also assistance, also the first transfers of money to support these these efforts. And something similar, I think, should should happen now in the, in the coming years as well. What about the other discussion at the moment, which is Ukraine's own offensive, counteroffensive that's happening? We've seen the EU and European countries step up militarily. How do you assess the current progress of the Ukrainian counteroffensive? And do you think it's getting enough support from the EU? I'm no military expert, so no comments on the pace of the counteroffensive. Just one thing, differently from some others. The uh, Ukrainian leadership has a high respect to the human life. And if they say this counteroffensive needs to be uh, done in that way, at that admittedly slow pace, then we we better trust them. If you look at the overall EU support since the start of the full-scale invasion, amounts to 80-81 billion euro, if you count all the different strands. And uh, the EU is paying almost a half of Ukraine's budget deficit, is funding this year. And the discussions on the next four years are well advanced to give more predictability also also to the Ukrainian counterparts. This 50 billion Ukraine facility that the Commission has proposed. On top of that, High Representative Josep Borrell has proposed a 20 billion support from the European Peace Facility, meaning military support for the remainder of the EU's long-term budget. If these things are being decided upon positively, it gives not only a pretty solid financing base, but it gives also the predictability for several years. And that's that's a very, very good thing. This all is underpinned by the uh, public opinion, of course. Yeah, that continues to be largely supportive to different patterns of EU support. I mean, we've seen the election in Slovakia, for example. We are awaiting the results of the Polish election. Could we see different you know, governments coming into power in Europe that are not so supportive of Ukraine? I mean, do you think that's a concern? Not for me to comment on any particular member state's political consideration. I just refer to the Eurobarometer opinion polls Mm. surveys that show continuous, persistent, high support to supporting Ukraine. So um, I'm fairly confident. You've dealt and met with President Zelensky many times. And, you know, what's your assessment of him as a how he's performed as a leader? Do you think the support is going to be maintained for him within his own country? I mean, what are your impressions? He's a natural born leader, yes. When he first joined or established the student uh, drama troupe, he was the leader. When he established uh, the uh, broadcasting company, he was the leader. He was the CEO. He is the leader. When I arrived in Kiev, just a couple of months after he had been elected, you could still hear voices, well, uh, I couldn't 
possibly vote for Poroshenko for the second time in a row. But okay, I voted for Zelensky. But but as a, maybe as a supreme command, Poroshenko would be more credible. Zelensky has proven that he is a very, very credible and that's a big understatement uh, supreme command. Mm. So how does it feel being back now here in Brussels? You've taken up a new position as special advisor to the Secretary General of the EAS, Stefan Sanino. It must feel strange being back here in this kind of Brussels bubble after being out in the field, particularly at a time of war in Ukraine. It's not the first time for me in the Brussels bubble. Rotation is a normal uh, part of, of diplomatic life. One thing I regret, though, that uh, uh, I couldn't... I was not able to wait for the day of victory to celebrate that on the Kiev's central Maidan Square, but I will be there on that day. Matty Melkis, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Make sure you do follow EU Confidential on your favourite app so that you never miss an episode. I'm Suzanne Lynch here in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and Diana Sturis, our senior audio producer. See you next time.